Hey guys, welcome back to Tennis 360, the podcast where we talk about all things tennis. My name's Anthony Hirsch. And I'm Eliza Westgate. Welcome back to the podcast. So we'll go through all things that happened throughout the week. We had a tournament on the HB side in Montpellier in France, where Alexander Bublik became the first man in history to win an ATV tournament uh, by dropping the first set in every single match that he played, which was crazy and ridiculous. And uh, did you ever expect that Alexander Bublik would be the guy heading the that stat of ultimate mental fortitude? <laughs> no, certainly not that stat. I mean, we know he's he's strong on indoor hard court, so and he's won this tournament before. So from a you know winning the title perspective, can't say that I'm all that surprised. Having said that, though, that particular stat is not something we would associate with Bublik. Typically, so I think it is testament A to his attitude in this given week, which we know fluctuates, and B, his ability to play in these types of conditions and how dangerous it makes him. Yeah, I agree. He's very good on faster conditions. We saw how well he did on grass courts last year uh, when he won a title in Halle, his only 500 title in his career so far. Loves the fast courts. It's the fourth title that he's picked up. He, uh, he initially lost uh, six of his first seven finals that he played, but he's just won three in a row on his yeah. side, uh, did Alexander Bublik. And, um, you know, he played, uh, he beat Borna Chorch in the final, uh, played a really good match. And uh, even though he was struggling, he came up against great players. We had all the top four seeds in the semifinals. And, um, you know, he had to play some really good players on the way. Had to beat Oje Ali Asim on the way in the semifinals as well, who's always tough on indoor courts, and he he was playing well this week. And then the final, Borden Chorch was playing very well as well. In fact, Chorch came back from 1-4, 15-40 down in the first set. Bublik seemed to be completely outplaying him. Then Bublik started making on force errors. Chorch was starting to be the aggressor, and uh, Chorch kind of made a comeback, and that makes it even harder to come back after losing that first set. But uh, Bublik managed it anyway. And, uh, you know, Bublik uh, was doing really well to set, uh, to kind of mess up Chorch's rhythm, I felt like, in the match. And he's like the he's the ultimate messing up of rhythm kind of player is uh, is Bublik. Uh, you know, he's up and down, but he uh, he makes it work. He makes this kind of chaotic game work. He was a much better server. He did well on the return of Chorch as well. And ultimately, uh, Bublik won 80% of first serves uh, up against Bublik, who won 58% of his first serve points. And uh, that's just not going to be good enough. And uh, Bublik continues a really good run of form. He was doing well. Yeah, I mean, I think every time Bublik wins a title, we ask ourselves, like, why couldn't he do this more often? I mean, from a pure talent perspective, he's just, he's got it. That The raw talent is there. The serve is so strong. He has such good hands. um, And, you know, he reads the game well, like, when he wants to show up. So I think in general, like, you know, he's one of those players that we put in a bucket of like, wish you could show up week in, week out, which you could show up at the slams. Um, but, you know, it's all on his terms. And when he when he wants to show up, he certainly does. And he does so in style. Um, and yeah, I mean, he's just a pleasure to watch when when he's playing well. And um, I think it's it's great that we continue to see him win titles. I think he's, is it his fourth title now to his fourth name? Fourth title, yeah. Yeah, you know, like there's not that many active ATP players who have four titles to their name. Um, and so he's certainly someone that's a force to be reckoned with. 
Uh, you never want to see him in your part of the draw because you don't know <laughs> what type of energy he's going to turn up with. Yeah. And I do think that win over Ogelia seem was a big one. I, I, I think I am not mistaken in saying that Felix had won something like 50 uh, hardcore matches in a row after winning the first set. So, you know, he is someone to contend with on indoor hardcore conditions. Um, and so for Bublik to overcome that is, again, you know, a testament to his playing style and ability and apparently his mental fortitude this week. So, yeah. uh, you know, he's an entertainer that I think we can all appreciate. And, um, you know, we just we love it when when he wants to turn up. Yeah. <laughs> that's about it <laughs> yeah it is entertainment because i like a wrench in the gears player like a boobleck yeah. or like one of these guys to show up because you know te tennis happens week in week out and uh you know it keeps things interesting it keeps things fresh i like these kind of players uh like a gail monfils like a curios like a uh fognini like these players like yeah. kind of mix things up and uh are great talents as well and he's a great talent and when he's able to really fulfill that potential. I think it's, I think it's really, really cool. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, uh, it was a great, it was a great tournament from him, uh, on these kind of faster conditions. And, uh, that stat from OJ Aliasim is, uh, ridiculous, but just shows how streaky he is. Bublik streaky. And, uh, when he's in a form like this, it's, it's really, it's really tough to beat him, I think. Um, and then, uh, so that was kind of Montpellier on the men's side. And then also we had a tournament on WTA side at the Thailand open where uh, uh, Diana Schneider beat Lin Zhu in three sets, 19-year-old Diana Schneider right out of college. Her second final, she got to the final of the Ningbo Open last year, lost to Jabor in straight sets in the final there. And, um, you know, she uh, she played she was playing some really good tennis. She took out the first seed, Magdalene Nett, in the first round. Lin Zhu had not dropped a set to the final, but Diana Schneider is able to get the win in three sets. And then Lin's tournament in Austria – uh, well, did you have any comment on the uh, on the um, tournament in Thailand, or uh, what are you thinking about Ostapenko as well winning in Linz? Yeah, I mean, like a great 250 tournament for Diana Schneider, her first WTA Tour title. I mean, I think she showed some solid performances in Australia as well, and is kind of digging her way in to you know the WTA Tour and getting used to life and competition at this level. And I think it's great that she can you know, get off to a you know positive start and, and get a title under her belt. Hopefully that does her wonders in terms of confidence and we'll yeah. continue to see her flourish. I think she's a really fantastic young talent, a really nice young woman. And um, yeah, a great win for her. I think the other kind of disappointing thing that came out of Thailand was uh, Bedosa had to pull out of her match against Schneider. She did seem to aggravate that back injury again. I mean, she spent most of 2023 nursing the back injury uh it's a concerning one it was a stress fracture and um yeah she then tweeted later that uh, it doesn't sound like she's re-aggravated the, the stress fracture but anybody who's had back problems knows that uh if you're feeling it on a court and you just you know you can't finish a match that uh it's no surprise she's now pulled out of abu dhabi and is taking some more time off. Hopefully she can have a you know partially healthy season this year and we can see her competing at a top level again. I mean, she's a former world number two. She won Indian Wells two years ago. So it's just a shame to kind of continue to see her struggle on the injury front. But, um, you know, hopefully positive signs in the sense that the injury doesn't seem to be worse than it um, than it was when she got there in the sense of re-aggravating. So fingers crossed she will be back 
Um, and then, as you mentioned, uh, Ostapenko. So our two Mavericks on the tour in Biblik and Ostapenko <laughs> winning titles this week. Love them or hate them. Their performances when they're on are brilliant. Ostapenko just, you know, has a style of tennis that I think it's hard not to love. Like yeah. if she's on, it's just, it's wildly entertaining. It's outrageous in moments and it's, it's brilliant. And she has won two singles titles already this year, has a doubles title under her belt and also got to a Grand Slam doubles final. So she's having a great start to 2024. She's up to world number 11, thoroughly knocking on the door of the top 10. And, you know, I think she's reinserting herself in the conversation of, of top women's players. And if she can continue this type of form uh, through, you know, kind of the next Masters 1000 tournaments, and um, then certainly I think we'll see her inside the top 10 and we might associate her with being a great hardcore player, but lest we forget, she is a Grand Slam champion at the French Open. So she definitely still has the skills on clay. And I don't know. I mean, I guess my question would be like, is she a name that we would seriously consider as a Grand Slam title contender this year? Can she be a Masters 1000 winner this year? Um, you know, what's the trajectory of her season look like since she started in such a strong way? Yeah, well, I think certainly Masters champion seems certainly very possible, especially with this kind of momentum and run of form that she's on at the moment. It's also very confident tennis that she plays, yeah. and it's that confidence that you really kind of, I think, is very likable and you want, want to latch onto when she's playing. And, um, you know, her best win percentage actually comes at Wimbledon. You mentioned Clay and Hardcourts. Her best win percentage actually at Wimbledon. Um, I, I remember the numbers. It was 67% at Wimbledon to 61% is her second best, uh, which is Roland Garros and also I think one of the hardcourt majors. So, um, you know, I think uh, that she, uh, the the pace of her shot works well on, on grass, but I think people also underestimate how well big hitters like Ostapenko can do on a uh, on a clay court as well. And she loves to clay and uh, we'll see how she can move to there. But yeah, I mean, she's only lost to Azarenka in singles this year. Um, and uh, she's been fantastic. Uh, just such a consistent pay just such a consistent um kind of um consistent aggression that's always landing in the court you look at the stat sheets her winners to errors is very solid and also she's been fighting well in matches even when it's gone tight i remember like yeah. her match um was i think against uh, pliskova was it in uh, brisbane i believe it was uh, she uh you know she was fighting so well throughout that match lots of deuce games that she was able to pull off even the last game of the match on her serve to serve it out off at six four so yeah. um you know i think uh i think she's somebody to look out for i think she can i think we should consider a, a contender for majors because it's also not like she's very consistent in playing with the you know it's not like she's playing with a kind of defensive game that you would worry about how it holds up against the big hitting players i think she has a very strong game with a lot of upside and at her peak her peak can be quite high as well so I think uh, yeah. I think that she will be somebody to uh, watch out for in pretty much every facet. I think, and she's yeah. knocking on the top ten in both singles and in doubles. We could have the third top ten singles and doubles players in the top ten out, uh, after Pagula and after Goff, as well. So yeah. uh, that's good to see for the doubles as well. To be honest, yeah, it's awesome to see. I think I've also seen a little bit of translation of those double skills into her singles game. I feel like she mm -hmm. is coming into the net more, and she's displaying really good use of her volleys and I think that you know only helps to improve and progress her game and you know in terms of the women who are one-time Grand Slam champions 
you know, that are currently active on the tour. I do think Ostapenko can sometimes be a name that gets a little bit forgotten or swept under the rug because she did win it at such a young age. Um, you know, and and the names like Raducanu or Rabakina get more attention, or even Krejcikova has wanted to insert herself in the mix more. You know, as a as a Grand Slam champion, and I think yes, you know, the level and performances since then um, has hasn't been quite the same. But I I do think we should give her credit that a she's still very young, and b she has dealt with that, you know, kind of, I guess, like fall from grace and in a way has been willing to kind of keep plugging away, stay true to her game and kind of who she is and has had the confidence to kind of continue to play the style of tennis that, you know, is her brand. And when she, when she's fit, when she's healthy, when she has that confidence, we know that she can beat the, the best players. I mean, she's one of Iga Shriantek's biggest nightmares and um, I certainly would love to see another matchup against, you know, Sabalenka or Rabakina sometime soon. I'd be curious to see how she fares again against uh, Coco Goff because she she didn't really show up in that match at the U.S. Open last year. But, you know, she has the weapons to take down some of these bigger names that are in the, the top 10 of the WTA list. And I just wouldn't be surprised if she gets hot on a seven match win streak and there's some, you know, the draw falls apart as it did in Australia and she finds herself back in another final. And, um, yeah. you know, <laughs> I know not everyone's her biggest fan, but I'm I'm always a fan of the characters and the personalities and the people that go about doing tennis a little bit different, whether that's her outfits, her baking page, <laughs> just, you know, how she <laughs> expresses herself on court. I'm, yeah. I'm a fan of those types of people because they, they help, you know, spread awareness about tennis and um, you know, grab people's attentions and start conversation, whether it's good or bad. And so, I, you know, I'm certainly rooting for her to get a number two Grand Slam title. I think it would um, it would certainly mix things up on the WTA side and make for a very interesting tournament. That's for sure. Yeah, it would spice things up. You you want kind of that kind of addition on the tour, even if not every player is kind of just you know, like. Uh this kind of Ostapenko type or this kind of right. even say Runa type on the men's side where they're a little yeah. bit more controversial and you never really know what's going on with them. Um, so I, I, even if you don't want Sinner and Alcaraz or if you don't want Rabakna and Sabalenka and Shviantek or everybody at the top to be like that, it's always good to throw an Ostapenko in there to cause a little bit of trouble and mix things up a bit. I think it's good. And, um, you know, I think, I think, uh, Yelena is somebody that I think a lot of people underestimate as somebody who's just kind of, I think people see her as an all or nothing player, but as you said, I think she is mixing more stuff into her game. And I mm -hmm. think that she is, um, you know, uh, just uh, varying herself better. And I think she is a better player now than she was in 2017. And I think that that is a big statement to say that she can win another major and she can win another masters. And I don't see why not. Um, and I think, I, th I would say, I think it's true that people see, certain personalities they just like write the player off but it's like right you, you know you know what ospenko's confident i think that'll do her good for i think that'll do her good for a major if nothing else she's confident and you mentioned the dresses and i think it's hilarious so <laughs> yeah you know and and she's shown she saved match points in in her bid to yeah. get this title in Linz. again you mentioned like her mental fortitude and resilience this year has been impressive i mean she's been able to put runs of you know three to four matches, four matches, four to five matches impressively together. And so to me, like, again, it just wouldn't be out of the blue if we saw her in around the mix quarters, semis, even into a final at some point this year. 
because I also look at some of the names who are above her in the WTA top 10, and there are a couple names in there that feel like they're getting a little cold, you know, mm -hmm. if you want to, if you want to be truly honest, Pagula hasn't had a great start to the year. She's injured. She's missing out on the Middle East swing. Then we've got Jabor, who's just not, you know, really been able to show up since Wimbledon of last year. And so there are a couple of names who we have question marks over, and um, it just could be poised perfectly for an Ostapenko to kind of come in a little bit under the radar without some of the pressure that those other names are facing and, you know, put a little, pretty mighty impressive run together. So, um, yeah. yeah, if, if I was uh, a bookie, I'd be giving good odds on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. I mean, yeah. Also Von Druseva is somebody who's just not really been finding the form recently. Zhang yeah. just climbed into the top 10, but we're not sure. Yeah. Uh, if she can uh, right now maintain that, we'll see. So, yeah, I think there's plenty of opportunity for Elaine to stop, step in. To be honest, I think if she's playing at the level she's at, I don't know I, I don't know if I can name uh, five players, period, that she can't beat. So I think yeah. that if she maintains this level, she should be able to climb up. And that level, after she saved a match point versus Towson, she uh, would only lose 13 games in her next three matches, beat Alexandrova in the final. Alexandrova needed a good run, so it was good to see her in the final. Yeah. Got through a third set tiebreak against Vekic in the semis, which was very close and tight. That was a good one for her. Vekic also really likes the fast conditions, doing well on the indoors. Also a good run from her to the semis. But, um, you know, uh, she was uh, very aggressive, but very consistent as well. She was doing great on serve, 74% of first serve points won, and she got seven breakpoint chances converted on three. Alexandrova just got one, converted none. And uh, Ostapenko's serving great, and she has all the confidence in the world, and that's just really good to see for Ostapenko in general. All right, and now for the weekly power rankings. Uh, so these are very different from the ones that we had uh, for the Australian Open power rankings that we were doing throughout that event. I think the rankings got really crazy. Now we have the kind of regular customers back in the mix. We've got uh, Sinner in there. We have Medvedev. Um, we have Djokovic, Zverev. Uh, I got Herkosh a little bit above, but you got Alcaraz, um, but pretty similar in general. Fritz. Uh, then I got Alcaraz and Rublev. And then I decided to give a nod to Bublik because he had a fantastic tournament in Montpellier. I think he's running on some great form momentum. And I think um, he's defending some points from Wimbledon and from Halla as well. He's also defending points from uh, points from a title in Antwerp towards the end of last year where he beat Arthur Fies in the final. So those are uh, those are a few points, uh, 200, uh, 250, a 500, and also fourth round of Wimbledon. Um, so I think uh, that we'll see if he can defend those, but even if he doesn't, he has five months to add and add and add points on. So I think he's heading potentially to top 15, to the top 15 if he keeps on this level, which uh, I just think that he deserves a nod because he's playing fantastic. He beat FA and Chorch this year, uh, this, uh, this week. And uh, those are tough players to, uh, to beat. So I thought it was a good run from Bublik. And then also Demonor is in the mix as, uh, as well. Uh, do you want to give your ATP power rankings? Yeah, I mean, look, my top eight didn't change from last week. We didn't see most of these guys in action. So, we're, you know, we're anticipating performances from, from some of them this week and then the rest uh, next week. Um, so, you know, kind of hard to have any movement there. But I also gave a nod to Bublik. I slot, slotted him in, in my number 10 spot in favor of Tsitsipas, who I had last week in the number nine spot. Uh, Hachanov, I moved up one. I was impressed by his performances at the Australian Open he is playing this week so I'm um, just giving him a little bit of love as he sh he's showing up and competing um 
but yeah, I mean, look, very, very similar thoughts. Uh, Public deserves to to be a mention here. I guess my only cause for concern is we don't seem to see Public have great kind of back to back weeks. Um, so <laughs> you know, when he wins a title, then um, maybe some of the uh, you know down periods can come afterwards or a little bit of a lackluster kind of attitude or struggling with motivation. I'm not sure what it is, but um, uh, I'm not sure I would bet on him having a great week next week if he does decide to compete. But um, yeah, I, I never know. Say, Again, those indoor corn- tournaments could, he might fancy it and um, yeah. you never know. Yeah. I was going to say, we, we, it's kind of a nightmare for the power rankings. We should, right, uh, we should create is. an honorable mentions bublik if he decides to show up this week exactly (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's uh you never know what you're getting from him but i do think those indoor conditions are are something that he likes to play in and he might fancy having another run at at one of these upcoming tournaments so again you just never know yeah for sure um and then wta sablinka goff stay ospinko climbed up to three i'll be honest i was tempted to put her at uh number two wasn't gonna put her in front of sabalinka but I- i'm just so high on ospinko she's only lost two matches both to azarinka uh but goff also won in what was in auckland at the us open also australian open semis even put up a good performance there so i have to give it to the top two but i'm just ospinko is in such good form and i just she's such a such a good player when she's on. And then I have also Shriantek uh, back in the mix, Rabakna, Zhang. Uh, I'm really high on Krajikova at the moment. I just, I'm also kind of judging, suppose I probably shouldn't for power rankings, but I just feel like we might see a good run from her over the next few weeks at one of these Masters, especially because she got, she won in Dubai last year. So I just think uh, we might be, we might see that. And then also I have Noskova at eight and then Andreva and also gave a shout to Alexandrova, who hasn't found form, but she found form this week. So I want to add her in because uh, I was glad to see her in a final because she's been losing a lot, <laughs> a lot recently. Yeah, she hasn't had a great start to this year, but um, and and honestly didn't really get to finish the year all that strong last year either. But we know she's a great talent and a great player, has sat around the top 10 uh, in the past. And so uh, great to see her get to another final and put, get a couple of wins under her belt. I'm sure that will help with her kind of mental approach coming into the next two Masters 1000 tournaments that are on the calendar. Um, interesting that we both have given a nod to Andreva. I think that um, she is playing this week as well. Got got a win yesterday. She, you know, got is now made the fourth round of two majors, one at Wimbledon, one at the Australian Open this year. Um, she's just continued to show that she you know, it's not beginner's luck. She's meant to be here. She is really putting the work in and the results are showing on the court and she's playing a good game of tennis, a good style of tennis. She's only 16 years old. So I think a lot of really positive, exciting things to come from her. Um, Linda Noskova, we've still got in our top 10. She came through qualifying in Abu Dhabi, unfortunately lost today to Cerebus Tormo in three sets uh Cerebus Tormo can again be one of those players that's just like annoying and tricky to play sometimes especially if you're kind of in difficult windy conditions wouldn't be someone I would fancy playing in that type of situation um Krejcikova I I would agree with you I think she also is a name that could be dangerous around this time of year I think she does well with tricky conditions we saw her do well in San Diego last year when there was a lot of wind there was a lot of wind in Dubai last year when she won that tournament. Yeah. So I think she comes in, you know, with great hands, great feel, and that sets her apart from some of the other names who maybe don't like playing under that type of difficult conditions. 
And then over Alexandrova, I gave a nod to Daniel Collins. I thought she played superbly today against Naomi Osaka. She also put up such a big fight against Sviantec at the Australian Open. And then uh, I forget who she played after that, but um, she gave them a run for their money too. And so I think that she, you know, she's mentioned that this is her last year on tour. She said that she just needed to set an end date for herself and know that, you know, kind of this was the last (laughs) uh, squeeze that she was going to give. And, you know, I think she is one of those players. She's made a Grand Slam final before. She's been top 10 before. She's had multiple health issues. And it's unfortunate that her career is coming to an end. But, I mean, my goodness, so she's kind of that Ostapenko type of uh, when she's on, she's on. And uh, she's so much fun to watch. And I just really hope we, we get to see a little bit more of her and some more deep runs over the next coming months, especially when she's on home soil in the U.S. Uh, and, and have some joy there. So I think she might she might be extra motivated um over the next couple of weeks yeah that's fair um yeah i mean collins at the australian open i felt i i felt sure that she was gonna beat Iga. to be honest i was i was almost amazed that Iga scraped through that and then i um and uh, it was just such a stunning comeback because collins was playing at such a good level and she never really got down on herself in that match either she's had to play four grand slam champions in a row now which is just yeah stunning and ridiculous i think and, oh uh, yes, I correct myself. She didn't beat Shriantek. Who did she beat at the Australian Open? Oh, in the first round. Oh yeah, she had a she had a tough one. Was it Angelique Kerber? I think. Yes. Yeah. Was it? Let's see. Yeah, Kerber. Yeah. Kerber. So, but she, my goodness, did she make uh, Shriantek? She made her, sweat. her money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. It was. Uh, yeah. Collins has been playing great. Um. Yeah. I also decided to put Mira in here like you said just because she's one of these players that i kind of think is just like gonna come out out here and just start just rise right to the top on the trying trajectory that she's going with she has such repeatable strokes on backhand and forehand that are just so kind of um so encouraging as she keeps growing as a player um you know the defense probably could still use some work the serve could use some work but you know overall like She's a very complete player already, and she's younger than Brenda Fruvertova, uh, by the way, which is like yeah. just shows how kind of young she is as a player. She's one of the youngest now in the whole top 100. I think she is the youngest in the top 100. And, um, you know, she's a player that I'm incredibly excited about. She broke through in Madrid last year, got to the quarterfinals as a 15 year old. And uh, kind of reminds me of back in the day when you had just uh, Martina Hingis and then also all these other kind of flares break through the scenes at super young of an age. I just have a feeling like she might be one of those kind of players, but time will tell. But one thing I know is that it's amazing how complete of a player she is for on defense, on offense, forehand, backhand, has the skills, has the vision, has a great mentality, um, obviously is a great athlete. And, uh, you know, uh, coming back from 5-1, 30-15 down, match point down at 5-2 against, I forget who it was, but at the Australian Open, that one Diane match, Perry. it just shows that she's different. Do you remember who that is? Because I, I can't remember Diane the name. Diane Perry. Pa- pa- uh, Perry, that's it, that's it, right. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Perry. yeah. yeah. I mean, she's suddenly a name to watch for. I mean, I, I hate to put pressure on a 16-year-old. I, I agree with you. I think she looks super complete for her age. Of course, there's always things to work on, but like if she can follow a similar trajectory to like a Coco Golf, 
just continue to, you know, really get experience on the tour. I mean, it feels like Coco is like almost a veteran now. She's been around for so long. Yeah. She's only 19, 20 years old and already has a grand slam. So I think, you know, just making sure for her that she, you know, has the right people around her, is enjoying herself, enjoying competing, learning, just soaking up as much yeah learning as she possibly can in these early years in her career and just continuing to be willing to improve her game and and kind of follow the the path to success in that way then i think she you know most certainly is on the trajectory to to do big things and um you know maybe win a title this year or um in it you know early in the next couple of years so i think she certainly deserves to be in a top 10 uh power ranking position for the start of this year and let's see if the momentum keeps going her way. Yeah. And it's the fun thing about the power rankings, right? Because it's, I, yeah. I think it's more of a fans rankings more than anything else. So just <laughs> yeah. like, these are players I'm excited about and it's not necessarily like we like one player more than another, but it's like, wow. Uh, Mira Andreeva looks great right now. I kind of think she might do something next week. I'll put her in. Like she, it might it might be somebody who's seventy in the world, but we're like, you know what? She looked really good in her match. Right. Like, wow, she's playing. She's hitting the ball crazy. I kind of want to ha- add her in. So I think the power rankings are kind of good in that way. And uh, it, yeah, overall, I think we have a pretty similar rankings to be honest um, for the for the power rankings. Um, yeah. But yeah, Sinner uh, and uh, Sabalenka still stay at the top until further notice, until probably more of the 1,000 tournaments kick in. And then uh, upcoming tournaments, uh, we have a list of upcoming tournaments here. We've got a 500, a 500 tournament in Abu Dhabi. Uh, great early kind of um, popcorn matchup there of Ons Jabor taking on Emma Raducanu, which is great because you don't really know what to expect. Raducanu just had her first top 40 win. Um, since 2022, can she get her first top 10 win period is the question. She has still not gotten a top 10 victory. She, uh, has a grand slam title under her belt. Uh, won every match in straight sets, won 10 matches there. And, uh, not, none of the sets went to even to five, five in that tournament. Still no top 10 win in her career. Um, and she's been some great players though. I mean, she's been Serena Williams at the kind of twilight of her career She's beaten uh, Maria Sakkari is another one, but Beatrice Hadidmaya was right outside the top 10. She's been a lot of Did really great Did she beat Sabalenka players. at the U.S. Open? No, that was Layla Fernandez in the semis. Ah, yeah. so did she beat uh, Sakkari in the semis? She did beat Sakkari, yes. Okay, gotcha, She beat Sakkari, gotcha. yes, in the semis. And, um, where is Sakkari right now? What is she doing? Where is Sakura? Uh, <laughs> where is Sakkari? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know what's up with her. She, uh, she... She lost uh, in the Australian Open like six four six four to young Russian player Avinyasan, yeah. and then yeah. I uh, I don't know what happened to her. I don't think she played a tournament this week, so we'll see what happens in the mm-hmm. thousands. But it's been really yeah. disappointing from Sakri, to be honest. Yeah. And um, yeah. and uh, yeah, uh, in the Abu Dhabi tournament, Osaka went out seven five six zero. Really, probably her worst performance since she's come back, but she's yeah. only coming back. I'm personally, I'm not that worried for Osaka, or at least not compared, like. I still have the same excitement levels about her coming back as I did at the start. Um, of course, this performance probably shows that maybe she needs more time before she's a big kind of Grand Slam contender or something like this, but I thought it would take her a little bit of time anyway. I still think she can get to that point, to be honest, but my excitement levels stay the same. I was wondering if you feel the same way or if you're a little bit more worried. No, I'm not worried. I mean, I think <laughs> she just had a baby six months ago and 
not everybody has the trajectory of a of a Svetolina coming back. And obviously she also didn't just have the baby. She was kind of faltering before that too, with everything going on with her kind of mental health and just kind of needing an overall break from tennis. So it really has been quite some time since we've seen her, you know, consistently compete on the tennis court. And I think nothing beats that match practice experience. She just, uh, she didn't look like she was kind of fully there today. Um, yeah, I would agree. Not one of, not a strong performance from her. Uh, but then again, coming up against a Danielle Collins, it's, it's, it's a tricky player to, yeah. to come up against if you don't have a lot of matches under your belt. Somebody that's just going to pound you from the baseline, from the word go, off, you know, go after every single shot. And, um, you know, that's usually Osaka's game. And so Collins brought it to her. So so credit to Collins. I think she totally, you know, deserved to win that match. And I think with Osaka, I'm not sure kind of what to expect from her this year but I mean she certainly showed glimpses of a high level performance when competing in Australia she she's so talented and she hits the ball so cleanly and her yeah. serve is so good for me yeah. it's like again kind of one of those players like if she wants to she will um it's just a matter of time so let's see how this year kind of develops and progresses see if she you know, competes well uh, in some of the kind of home tournaments. I know she's a Japanese player, but obviously grew up in the States. So let's see how she does in Miami. Um, you know, she's basically a Florida native. So um, <laughs> we'll, we'll keep a keen eye on her. But no, I, I don't feel negative about Osaka's return. I think it's still so early days. Yeah, that's fair. I'd, I'd agree with everything. Um, yeah, we. Uh, I hope that Osaka does well. Noskova. Lost, like you said, early to Cerebus Tormo. Uh, Watson beat Kudamatova. Kudamatova not really having a good time of it since she got the title in Tokyo, beating both Pagul and Shriantek on route. Been losing to a lot of kind of weirder weirder players that she should not be losing to. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I just I just kind of hope she finds it. Heather Watson is the name. I, I haven't heard in a while, period. I don't know what <laughs> happened to her. I remember when she broke throughout Wimbledon, like uh, maybe – over 10 years ago as a younger player and i just haven't heard her name since i think she'd be the top 10 player there and then i just haven't heard her name yeah she she's not been in and around the mix you know um a lot of the british women haven't you know other than radicani who came out of nowhere to win a slam the british women hadn't been in and amongst it for quite some time um i think watson has been a name that dealt with injuries and got like serious kind of case of the yips and just total confidence collapse I think she also had some kind of health issues in general. But yeah, I mean, she's a slightly, you know, she's a veteran player, um, but still loves competing. And she's scrappy. She she defends well. She moves well. And um, I'm not sure how much of it, you know, is is a Watson on a hot streak versus Kudamatova just not having a great time. Yeah. Uh, we'll see. But I think, um, I think Kudamatova probably either didn't have enough off time in the off season and didn't get rest towards the end of the year or she feeling something. Cause uh, these are not performances that we're used to seeing from her. You know, she, she was also another name knocking on the top 10 last year and um, yeah, question marks over kind of what's going on with her performance wise. 
Yeah, I, 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 it's it's one of these players like Kunmatova is kind of having a bad time of it. Von Drus was having a bad time of it. Sam Sonova yeah. was, but I don't know if you saw, but she beat Serenko today, like 6-1, 6 0. So, but Serenko uh, always gets bageled. <laughs> it's just one of those things. She's always getting bageled. Like, I feel like when she loses, she gets bageled. Oh, okay. Like, yeah, it's, yeah. it's like, it's one of those things where it's like, when she loses, she takes a fat L. And then when she wins, it's great. But like, there's no like in between with Serenko. I I I just it's like she just yeah. gives up or something. I don't know what happens, but <laughs> yeah, that's strange. She, she like, takes a lot of bagels. It's like I'm down three zero. Uh, on to the next. Oh, fuck it. Yeah, <laughs> here we go. On to the next. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, and then uh, that was Abu Dhabi WTA 500 tournament. Yeah, and then also, so that's ongoing at the moment now. Just so you guys. Yeah. Know. Yes. Uh, and then also this week, Transylvania. Uh, so this one is weird because Rus and Maria are the top two seeds, but then also yeah. Karolina Pliskova is in here and she yeah. is unseated. And that makes no sense to me because yeah. she's a Grand Slam finalist. And uh, <laughs> why would that be the case at any point, especially yeah. since she's playing so well at the moment? Uh, yeah. Also, you have Andreeva in here. Also, you have Blinkova. Uh, who had the most famous victory of the year uh, this year, you would probably say, maybe outside of Sapolinka. Yeah. Um, so, you know, uh, pretty good tournament there. Cornet, Maria also in there. And uh, yeah, we'll see how that tournament goes. Like I, I, I think Andreeva is a big person to watch in that tournament. Honestly, you said about a title, she's playing great. I would not be surprised. Um, also think about Andreeva, she plays well on clay, grass and hard court. So she's just yeah. like, it amazes me how complete of a player she is. Once again, no pressure, no pressure. Yeah. <laughs> but you're you're well, pretty good. Well, it's almost you're like you're coming at 16 years old, and like sometimes you crumble under the pressure, and sometimes they're like, I, I ain't got nothing to lose. Like I, you know, she got oh, to yeah. the fourth round of Wimbledon having basically never played on grass before, yeah. you know, and and wasn't afraid of it. Whereas I feel like a lot of players they come into grass season they're like, ooh, I'm uncomfy. Like if I move funny here, I could hurt my knee or hurt an ankle. And they kind of play with a level of tentativeness. But when you're 16 years old, like you don't have that fear. You don't have that same caution to the wind in terms of your body. And if that works out for you and you don't pick up a knock and you don't kind of have a bad or negative experience, then that totally works in your favor from a confidence standpoint of like, hell yeah, like I can navigate all of these surfaces and I can do it well. And I mean, yeah. she slides well on all surfaces. Her I agree with you. Like her game style is just so impressive. And this field in Transylvania has got some good names in it, but these are not, these are not big winners. And so yeah. she could come through this field and she could win a title here um, for sure. She's got the energy to do it too. Cause a lot of these names are no offense to these ladies, older women. And that doesn't mean that they can't win. But when you think of Plisco, uh, Ruth, Maria, they're all in their thirties. And so, um, you know, it, that's just, a different level of playing back-to-back -back matches that a 16-year-old is not going to have the same level of tied legs yeah, after a match. That's a youth and that's there. totally in her favor. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, 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 I'd agree with, uh, I'd agree with it. And also it's the new WTA 250 world. I think you can't have a top 30 player inside there. And I'm just yeah. like, I don't like that rule at all. It's a to stupid be rule. It's a stupid rule. Yeah. Because um, first of all, Okay, so we want tournaments to do well. We want the WTA as a whole to do well. So why would we make it so that individual tournaments 
don't have the star power that other tournaments would have, even if they're bigger. And why are we dividing the tour in that way? It's like, that makes no sense to me personally. Because a lot of these tournaments too, by the way, they've been going on for like over 30, 40, 50 years. They have the history on them. A lot of people find them very important. A lot of people go every year in their home city and watch this tournament. And now you've taken out the big names that constantly go there. And it's like, why would people even watch? It's it's like, it reminds me of... um, it reminds me of, uh, for example, Djokovic playing in Belgrade, uh, uh, Belgrade right. every year. It's like, okay, well, what if he couldn't play it? It's like, that would that would be a travesty for that tournament and watching the no- best player ever not being able to play in their city. And it's like, that seems that seems to make very little sense to me. It 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 appears to me like it's just kind of a way of dividing the tour and giving, you know, yeah, just. I don't know. It, it it feels like you're you're just taking away the star power from from the main tournaments, I guess. And it, it it's it just seems utterly stupid. And um, yeah, I don't understand why they have that rule. I, I I don't get it either. I mean, again, it's like I'm not saying the ATP gets everything right, but like the ATP doesn't have that rule, and they're the ones who have <laughs> had players in the past who notoriously play a lot of 250s and get a lot of points from it. I mean, M, Casper Ruud, like we were having that conversation. He was a 250 king a couple years ago. And um, why not? Why not? And so a win is a win. Um, And I'm all for giving players the flexibility on, you know, where they want to play, connecting with fans in, you know, local areas, local tournaments. And there's no... Who are we to say kind of what form a player is going to be in and dictate, um, you know, how many of those top, those lower level tournaments they can compete in? Because you don't know uh, the current state of affairs on a player's health. They could skip a 500, you know, have, have a little bit of a niggle going on and want to test it at a 250 level and you know get a couple matches under their belt and see how they're physically holding up like that could be one reason why they want to compete you know another reason is just as you say like some of these tournaments are really old tournaments that have been on the tour for so long and i i don't think the players understand it and i don't think the media understands it and it's just another one of those things coming out the wta where you're just like what are you doing like there's no logical explanation for it yeah, I agree. There's no, there's no logical explanation. And um, yeah, I like the point you make about Casper Ruud because yeah, honestly, I think like what, however a player kind of gets their points, I think people just underestimate how difficult it is to win those tournaments against yeah, those lower ranked players. Up. It's like, yeah, anybody on their best day can be pretty, can play like top five, top 10 level. I, and, the, yeah. and if you're in the top 100, Anyone on their best day can play can play incredible tennis and would be very tough to beat. You have to beat some very very high level players, and um, you know I just think like I just think it's a weird weird way to divide top players from lower ranked players and you know and just keep top players at the big events and it just seems like that's stupid to me and it it reminds me on the ATP how they've kind of. Um, I don't know if you saw it this year, but they they raised the points at all of the ATP events this year for the first time since 2009. And so now to uh, if you win a Grand Slam final, it's 1,300 points rather than 1,200, for example, and mm. stuff like that. They raise the points up. So if you look at the ATP points Wikipedia, they've actually raised the points up. And it it, it but here's the thing. that's I don't actually have that much issue with that. Here's my issue. 
they lowered the points at every single form of a challenger event. They lowered all of the points there for, for all of the challengers across the board. And yeah. it's um, at least outside of the winner's points. And that just seems, and it's such a big disparity now. And it just feels like they're trying to divide the tour into two. It's like to make it harder for people to climb up. Because even like, you know, it, it, it just, it, it makes it so that it's much easier to stay at the top and it makes it so it's much harder to climb up and to get those chances against player against against players. So, I mean, it, it's complex. There's pros and cons, but, um, you know, it, it just seems strange to me. I'm a fan of all these tournaments, of all these smaller tournaments. It makes no sense to me to to kind of not pay attention to them or act like they're unimportant. And, uh, you know, you go to your home, your hometown city, you're like, we have a tournament here that's professional. You want to go out and see your favorite players. And suddenly it's, you know, n- n- no offense to any of these players, but it's a lot of players that maybe people haven't even heard of if you don't follow tennis that closely. Right. And even if you follow tennis closely, I don't know if that it's players that you would have heard of that often anyway. Like, um, like I don't know if the casual fan watches the top seed here, Roos, all that much. Like, you know, you know what I mean? It's like, why are, why, are, why are we doing this to tournaments? It just feels like it's completely going against tennis in every single way. Um, one good thing about tennis is that there's events every single week. You never have to get bored. You can turn it on, watch it whenever you want. There's something exciting going on. Different players have their different stories. And also, it makes it ultra exciting if a player like Roos or Maria are able to win the event. And guess what? There are top 30 players in that tournament. So uh, I don't understand it. Uh, Mira Andreva really is kind of like a top 30 player at the moment, but the point still stands anyway. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I mean, I think tennis, like, it needs to be a sport where, yeah, you can move up and down the rankings and that there's opportunities to grow. And I think we've long understood that if you're outside the top 100, 200, getting in and around the mix, being able to financially support yourself, it's just getting harder and harder. And we know, like, the ATP has some initiatives, like the minimum base pay, that they're starting to introduce which maybe will help but when you look at the numbers it's like 70k a year and i'm not saying like 70k is pitiful but when you think about how much money they spend traveling and if oh, you're yeah. outside the top 100 or top 150 they're not paying for your flights they're not paying for your hotel like yeah. they're not so helping you in any way and if you don't come from a country where you have a big federation a or that you have a big federation but you've got 25 players above you they're not giving you any money. They don't care about you. Sponsors don't care about you. They've got 25 other Americans that they want to, you know, help out. And so I just think at the end of the day, um, tennis does have this elitist reputation and certainly favors those who have the financial ability to compete. And when you continue to make that disparity wider, you continue to feed into this narrative that tennis is an elitist, you know, high-end sport. And when we want to think about the vision of tennis long-term and continuing to grow the game, we want it to be accessible to as many people as possible, A, to grow the talent pool, and B, to keep the game alive and interesting. And I again, like, I would just love to know from these executives, like, what the thinking is, my only hunch, little piece or caveat that I wonder about with these types of changes is like, are you trying to get to a point where you can separate the cream of the crop and have some sort of like elite league that is backed by Saudi, 
somebody else coming in and you're having like a, a set list of names that are coming in and out of competing some of these tournaments, a, a, a voice in the back of my head says that something like that might be behind trying to create some separation between your top and lower level players, whereby you would have two different types of tours. Um, and uh, maybe those top players become merged under, you know, something else. So that would be my worry. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like the, it's like the six Kings event that came out this week yeah. about, you know, Alcaraz and center and Djokovic, everybody playing. It just feels like it's done under more of a financial interest than anything else. And right. you're right. It seems like a lot of it is about helping um, American players more than anything. I mean, we have like, what, like 15 tournaments in the U S on the men's side every year. I mean, there's, I don't think there's a single big tournament in like Africa, for example, or like yeah. different huge continents in the world. And it just seems like yeah. that is like a ridiculous thing to me that there, there, there are people who are tennis fans or don't even have the chance to be tennis fans in those cities. They don't even get the resources to be tennis fans. And they're, they're, they're forced to, um, you know, be ignored in the sake of, uh, of American players. And, um, yeah, it makes very little sense to me altogether. And, um, I don't know. You might be right about separating tours. I mean, um, uh, Taylor Fritz, who, uh, who I actually like a lot. I like that he speaks his mind. I think he's a genuine guy always talking about tennis, but he spoke about the fact that he thinks that there should be two different tours separated between the top 100 players and everybody else. And then after a year is done, you get a chance to move inside the top 100 if you performed well enough outside the top 100 and that you only are, uh, you, if you're inside top 100, you play at a certain set of events throughout the year, like nine to 12 events. I personally yeah. would absolutely hate to see that happen. I do not want to see the two tours <laughs> yeah. separated. I think that that would be bad for the sport altogether. I think it's always fun to get uh, give different people chances. It's hard enough to climb up in the sport as it is. Um, like you said, uh, with the little resources, some of these tournaments are historic. I mean, people talk about taking away these kind of clay tournaments that, but they've been around for like, oh, some have been around for over 80, 90 years. And some of them are 250, sure. But they've got mm -hmm. history behind them that I think is important and you know, it, 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 it just seems like I, it just seems like, yes, it might be done for more of a financial interest standpoint or to help out elites or Americans or people who are more in charge at the moment in tennis. And that just seems like the wrong way for us to go in tennis. If we want to make it more exclusive, inclusive, we want to make it more global. If we want to actually get people involved and, you know, kind of spread exposure to the sport, um, and yeah, it, it makes very little sense to me. I hope that doesn't happen. The challengers, these players climbing through the challengers. Hey, look up challenger highlights on YouTube. They're pretty good. Yeah, they're, they're, they're pretty good. And I just don't understand why these are some of the players working so hard. And you said $70,000. So most of the time, more often than not, it's actually in hundreds of thousands more than something else. And that seems yeah. incredibly, incredibly difficult for me uh, to me to see how, they're going to try to get more and more young rising stars who might even be struggling with chances anyway, when they're being blocked by, you know, ATP's rulings. And yeah, I do worry that maybe they're trying to separate into two tours. And that is really the first thing I thought about when I saw the disparity of challenger points going down and ATP points going up. Cause yeah. we see that we, it, it just, it, 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 it's like at the top for the ATP, we see a lot of the same names staying around anyway. I do think it's harder for those lower-ranked players to climb up anyway, and it's only making it harder and harder. I yeah, I mean, look, I think if if I was to play devil's advocate, I do think there's room for 
innovation. I do think there's room to be creative and think about how we run tennis a little differently. You know, I'm I'm a fan of merging ATP and WTA. And in other sports, we do have leagues. You know, we have pyramid systems. And pyramid systems can work to redistribute money in a fairer way to make sure that players are supported at all levels. Um, you know, could I see a world in which we separate the tours you know, by kind of top level, 100 level ranking, and then you still give an opportunity to those in 100 to 200 to qualify for the slams. Um, and maybe you would have like two qualification checkpoints at some point in the year to get up into a different tour. Um, would that mean that, you know, players in top one through 100, they don't need a base level minimum play uh, pay per se, but the folks between 100 and 200 certainly do. Like, is there a way to... Um, you know, increase that that funding for those types of players and allow the top 100 players to play for the bigger prize pools, prize money and sponsorship, those types of opportunities, because the needs of those players and, and representing them under a PTPA is just so difficult when you have completely different needs at different levels. So for me, it's like I'm not necessarily opposed to reimagining how we organize the tours, how we go about players like health and wellness, you know, how many tournaments they should be playing a year, how we're, how we're supporting them when they have families. I think that conversation is becoming ever more relevant for the women's tour. You know, these, these mothers, it's hard to travel with your kids at that, you know, at that level and um, to that extent. And so what are we doing to evolve the game for a modern player and a modern audience and modern expectations. Um, certainly a relevant conversation and something I'm willing to entertain, but I just think one worries that the intention behind it is not good. Um, that the intention is coming from a money-making perspective, that it's coming from, you know, uh, governments wanting to, to buy their way in. And I'm not, again, like I'm not opposed to Saudi wanting to host tournaments, but when we want to think about where the tennis tour needs to go it should go to the middle east but it should also go to more african countries we should do better about the tournaments in india we should have a tournament in the philippines we don't have you know tournaments in uh in a lot of parts of the world and so i think it's it's more than just do we accept saudi or not and being much more intentional about where we're placing our players giving fans opportunities to watch giving players opportunities to compete and I just, as I said, I just worry about the intention of those leaders and really what they're kind of trying to get out of doing it. I'm just not sure that they have the fans and the players' best interests at heart. Uh, I think it's their pockets. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree with everything. I mean, I think, um, well, yeah, uh, pretty much everything I, I agree with. I think, um, like, setting up the tours in uh, – in, t in a different way, I think uh, I'm I'm actually very uh, very on board with it. If it's more you know accessible to the sports fan or the tennis fan who wants to watch tennis in a very kind of exciting way, if it makes sense to the players and their scheduling, I think the season can be fully reimagined. I wouldn't even have a huge issue with that as well. Yeah. In the way that um you know the the actual schedule of it of when certain t or tournaments are. Uh, taking place, having a longer off season is an obvious thing that I think should absolutely happen. Um, yeah. So I, I think that that can happen. Um, personally, my uh, bigger problem with the um, 
with the kind of idea of the two uh, tours was the fact that all only uh, rather than the top 100 playing in different tournaments, the fact that right. the big uh, the top players can only play in like a certain set of right. tournaments, which is yeah. like that just seems so so utterly um, so so utterly what's the word um, regressive for the for the tour as a whole and for the sport. Um, and I think that you know. Uh, Overall, I'm okay with some ideas, but as long as they're not, you know, like you said, in bad in intentions and that they're not, you know, hindering uh, a lot of really great tournaments that we have throughout the year and uh, hindering chances for different players. And, you know, um, it, it just seems like it, it's regressing the tour in a big way. And I don't want to see, I don't want to see players who already have a hard time climbing up, have an even harder time climbing up than they do now. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, coming up next week, <laughs> we do have back-to-back uh, -back WTA 1000 tournaments. We want to talk about scheduling headaches. I mean, the men don't have a Masters 1000 tournament until Indian Wells. The women have two. I'm pretty sure uh, you're right in saying that Qatar got upgraded from a 500 to a 1000. So that means they've got a 1000 in Qatar next week, and then they've got a 1000 in Dubai the following week. And then just uh, less than two weeks later, we've got another set of back-to-back -back 1000 tournaments at Indian Wells in Miami. I mean, <laughs> well, uh, I don't even know what to say, but uh, in Qatar, Eager is the two-time defending champion. She won it in 22 and 2023. If you go to the WTA's website, they have not published a player entry list, which, by the way, WTA is ridiculous from a marketing perspective. You cannot tell me that you don't know what your player entry list is next week. Uh, lies. But uh, you did manage to <laughs> dig out some of those names yeah, yeah, that just, might be in just the mix. Really quickly on that, just, just really quickly on that, though, it's like it's so hard to find so many different things for WTA, right. whether it's highlights or whether it's stats or whether yeah. it's this or whether it's that I'm a fan of the, of WTA and everything that's going on right now. And it's like, I, 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 it's, it's scarce information that I just am not able to find no matter where I look online. And it just seems like, uh, I don't even understand why they're not marketing it. Well, I mean, I think at one point they had a plan with like tennis TV to show highlights and now uh, to show matches and stuff. And now they canceled that. And it's like, it's hard to watch matches. It's hard to know where to find information. And it's so easy. If you look up ATP matches, they just like go right yeah. to like different stats and different things like that makes very yeah. little sense to me. Altogether. Yeah. I mean, they pulled out of that deal with tennis TV a couple of years ago. It, I mean, it was such a bad move and <laughs> I mean, there's just so much going on there from a marketing perspective that's so disappointing. I don't think that it's not, you know, that the women's game isn't interesting. I think tennis fans are tennis fans and they'll watch, you know, a Naomi Osaka play Collins. Like, why not? But, you know, that that's so difficult to find. I'm a tennis nerd. I find it difficult to find WTA information, WTA matches. I mean, for the very least, your 1,000 tournaments the week before, you don't post the entry list. I mean... Bare what? At, at like, the that's the least. bad freaking minimum. And you know who it is. It's your top 64 players. I mean, are you joking? Like, yeah, I, I, it's so bad. It's so lazy. It makes the women look like shit. And it's not their fault. And for God's sake, 
their marketing budget is less than what they pay their CEO. And that is never right, in my opinion, ever. I don't care. I'm not just talking about tennis. If your marketing budget is less than the salary of your man in charge, your company is running things in the wrong way. Okay, it's just that's not a growth mindset. That's not an that's not how you scale. That's not how you get success. And even if Steve Simon is now going to take on a chairman role position, we still don't know where the WTA finals are. We said in October of last year, this definitely cannot happen again. They still won't announce where it's going to be. We're going to have another crap year of WTA finals. And it's just it's just unacceptable. And understand again, like, why have we got two back to back Masters 1000 tournaments at this stage of the season? It's ridiculous. There's a reason why the men don't have that. I mean, I just, I cannot get on board with the way that they're running things. And I just, I just want to be like, clear them all out because it all sucks. (laughs) Yeah, I, I yeah, it's just setting it the, up the tour to fail, and it's in such a good place yeah. with the players, and yet they just can't really do anything to bring the sport up. And um, the the marketing point is something that I so much agree with and have thought about before. Is that like you're trying to the thing is for the people and making it popular. It's like why would you not not do it in that way? Um, it almost yeah. implies like they know they don't have fans there that are going to come and watch that tournament. I mean, I'm sorry to say it, but like. Are you really telling me that Qatar and Dubai, you need Masters tournaments in both those locations? You think those stadiums are going to get packed? No. Yeah. And and that's certainly not if you're not even going to publish who's playing there. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's insane. I totally agree. It's it's just like, uh, and then at the end of the tour, the uh, end of the year, you have like two or three months with absolutely zero one thousands, and it's like, what's? It, it doesn't make much sense to me. Not at all. Anywho, no. uh, yeah. the usual names are suspected to to be competing, um, but it's not official yet. So I guess we'll wait till next week's podcast. But um, hey ho, we do have ATP 250s going on this week, and they're actually pretty stacked rosters because um, there's not much other choice. So we've got the ATP 250 in Dallas. That's got a lot of big American names. So. If you're in and around the Dallas area, seriously, you should go check that tournament out. We've got Tiafo, Eubanks, Michael Moe, Jerome, Mickelson, Shelton, and Paul from the Americans. And uh, then some other names that are in there include Manorino and Purcell, who's a fun watch. So um, some really kind of big hitters in the in the mix in the draw here. And I think that this will be a really fun tournament. I, I honestly was thinking in the car this morning, I was like, maybe I should try and get to Dallas this weekend because um, mm. I just have a feeling like it's a good energy and a good vibe. Yeah. Um, so excited I, for that one. I met the Dallas tournament director in Atlanta. Um, and Did I had you? A, I, yeah, I had a conversation with her and uh, she was just so nice. And I was like, Oh, how was Yiving Wu and how was like Isner and Fritz and whatever? And she yeah. told me about all the players and all the inside scoop. Oh, cool. And it was that, yeah, it was one of the best moments down there. So I was happy when I saw them move up to 500 because I love watching that tournament just on TV. And I, I'd love if you, if you got a chance to travel, I think that'd be awesome. Yeah, maybe a little last minute decision. We'll see how it goes. Then we've also got a 250 in Provence. Uh, top seed there is going to be her catch. We've got Umber in the mix, Davidovich, Fakina, Hachanov, um, Murray lost this morning. And then uh, an interesting round two between Sebi Korda and Timotrov. If we want to talk about young American players doing well, Seb Korda is the first American man born in the 2000s or later to get to 100 ATP wins. That's super impressive. Uh, there's not actually that many American names who have even done that period. Um, so 
you know, I think, again, he's a name that's been a little bit plagued by injury at unfortunate periods of time, but we continue to bring him up in this podcast as like an exceptional talent. And yes, you know, the Shelton, Paul and Fritz and all them are ahead of him at the moment, but I wouldn't be surprised if when it's all said and done at the end of their careers, if quarter is really the one that um, kind of, you know, does some big damage on the ATP tour because he has such a good game. Yeah, I feel I fully agree. I, I've always said the same thing. I think he has the most upside. He just doesn't play enough, but I, I think a lot of it is physical and mental. He has the technical right. down. I mean, he has yeah. such repeatable strokes. It's very complete. He's a big server. He has a good rest of his game. He's got some good skills. He likes to come to net. He can play well on clay courts, which is an absolute rarity in, uh, for American. I think American tennis fans should absolutely just be be pushing him up and hyping him up like, Corda, get it done. Get to a Roland Garros quarterfinal, please. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? Because like, yeah. we don't we don't have that nowadays. And uh, yeah. Fritz did better on clay last year but yeah we don't have that quarter is very exciting quarter dimitrov is very good dimitrov lost to borges at the australian open i thought he was gonna have a yeah. good run of it at least face off yeah. against medvedev and give himself a chance for it but he yeah. kind of lost out of the blue so uh but you know yeah. two players that are exciting when they're playing their best they're very fun to watch very clean talented um talented players hit the ball very clean um yeah that's a round two match that's gonna Definitely. be good and uh our final 250, that's in Argentina, that's on clay. Uh, usual suspects there, Sorindolo, Echeverry, Baez. Again, kind of a home a home tournament there, so a lot of Argentinian players yeah. are in the mix. Um, but yeah, a couple, couple good 250s packing out this week. And then for next week for the men, we've got their first 500 tournament. That's going to be in Rotterdam. Medvedev is the defending champion, but he has since pulled out, saying uh, his foot in particular is still bothering him post all that time on court at the Australian Open. Not super surprised that he would take a little bit of extra time. Yeah. I mean, there's no need for him to rush it. They'll still probably get a tournament in before Indian Wells, question mark. Um, but uh, yeah, understandable that he's taking the time. Otherwise, the big names as suspected will be competing. Some of you might not know, Ojele Asim has won this tournament twice. Um, and so has Monfils. Um, So we'll see if Felix could, could kind of you know, have another good indoor hard court run here in Rotterdam and, you know, give a good go of it. But it's again, it's another one of those 500s that's stacked with the big names. So I think that'll be a pretty fun tournament coming up for us next week. Yeah, I think I yeah, I think Yannick is in there as well. Center still yeah. uh, set to play. So yeah, yeah, that should be a good one. I love this part of the season with Rotterdam and Dubai. They're two of my favorite yeah. tournaments, at least five hundreds of the of the season. I love the indoor conditions and um how fast they play can make for some great shot making. So love yeah. always love to see it. And then we've got the culture segment to wrap things up uh for us. And uh Bulgaruna, what are you doing? Fumble two big three coaches, two powerhouse yeah. coaching names. He just got uh, Severin Luthi about a month ago. Luthi was out this week. He went out. He worked with Roger Federer. I'm pretty sure a lot of you know, but he worked with Federer for a long time. And then also uh, Boris Becker. He was like, hey, it was a great journey being with you, but peace. I'm out. I'm gonna going to head out here. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a tight spot for Runa now with this uh, situation because uh, – I'll be honest, this uh, Runa out of Sinner Alcaraz and Runa, the kind of the three young guys people are talking about the most, he's the guy who needs the most work. He's the guy who yeah. needs to work on a shot selection. He has a game that needs to kind of add big weapons to kind of match some of these other guy, young guys coming up like Sinner, like Alcaraz, even like some young guys below him. He's kind of lacking a big weapon, in my opinion, compared at least to the top two ahead of him. 
And uh, it sucks to see for Holger, just in such a weird situation altogether. And, you know, it just feels like there's weird things going on behind the scenes all the time with him, to be honest. Yeah, it does. And a bit of a trend emerging here because yeah. he kind of said hello and goodbye to Maratoglu twice last year. Um, sure, yeah. Before we all pile in on him, though, I think there are some logistical things going on. You know, that it was already disappointing that Becca didn't make it to Australia. You know, uh, if you can't make it to the slams as your coach, that that's concerning. Um, and it sounded like from a kind of commitment and travel schedule, it was similar with, um, how do I pronounce his name? L Lutheran? Lutheran? Oh, uh, Luthi. Severin Luthi. Yeah. Severin, yeah. Um, that he also couldn't quite commit to a full schedule, full calendar, like didn't want to totally be two feet in. And I can understand why a young player like Runa is like, no, like you need to be all in on me. Like you need to be fully committed to me and traveling with me and being at these big tournaments. That's why you're my coach. And um, so for me, the question marks are around like, what decisions were you making when you employed these people? Because you must have known uh, they must have communicated in some way that they they couldn't be there for, for all tournaments at all moments. Plus, it sounded like when they had Becca join the team last year, it sounded like it was going to be a short-term commitment anyway that then got extended because it was going well. But I didn't necessarily expect that to be something that he even came into this year with. So I, I don't want to pile in on him and be like, oh, he's a crybaby and he fires everyone because he's not playing well. I don't think that that's the case. I, I, I reckon he's probably not the easiest person to work with. Um, to me, there's also a strange dynamic with his mum. You know, if you look at the successes of Alcaraz and Sinner, their parents are not involved. Um, you look at Coco Goff, her dad stepped back. And, and Andy Ruddick, you know, tweeted about that and said how amazing her dad was at, at letting other people steady the ship and, and steer the ship. And that, that can be uncomfortable as a parent. But they're just, you know, like even when you watch the Netflix documentary, his mom is involved at a level that I think would would bother coaches and um, perhaps is getting in his way without him really realizing it. Um, you know, you just don't want to have that many cooks in the kitchen. And I just feel like he he needs someone that, you know, is young, is energetic, is committed to him, that's excited about him and that's going to be, you know, ever present with him on the tour. And he's not found that in these two, in these two older guys. And um, yeah, it's an unfortunate time in the season to be looking for a new coach as well. So a lot of question marks about, you know, what he's going to do and what his performance is going to look like, you know, by the way, he, he had a walkover against Charich in um, this week. Where was it? <laughs> in Antwerp. And um, Mar no, Mar Mars or uh, Ma Montpellier. Montpellier. That's the one. Um, which I thought was not a good showing. He was down, I think, 1-4 in the second and then went yeah. for the walkover. Again, like to me, those are moments like, unless you have torn a muscle, broken a bone, you're literally immobile, just finish the last two freaking games, for God's sake. Like, you know, and then he'll post something that, like, with a tweet that's like, hashtag health first. And I'm like, really, bro? Like, just finish mm -hmm. the match. You know, unless you really can't walk, just finish the damn match. And... um I I don't know what's next for him, but this does not bode well to having a good first half of the year and um disappointed to to kind of see the situation that he's in because he is so talented. Yeah, well, 
Yeah, well, it reminds me of Tits Boss uh, with the with his yeah. dad, also with his mom kind of stepping into the fray. It just feels like it'll distract you to have like somebody that personal with you. The focus has to be on tennis. Yeah. With the mom involved, I just don't see that many positives. Or at least that she can be like. You can have a family member involved, but why do they have to be right in on top of everything? And also, right. he did a magazine cover with him and his mom, which is kind of just that was so weird, strange. Yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't really understand. Uh, I don't understand half the things that Runa does, so it's like you know, I'm why just does like, she even want to be in his limelight? Like that's my question no. mark for her no. as well. It's like let your kid shine. You know, you don't need to yeah. be on the cover of the magazine with him. You're not the tennis player. Like, I understand yeah. her being involved in the Netflix doc. Like, that's, you know, she travels with him. She's around. But it's just, yeah, it's I, a weird dynamic. And there's a reason why we don't see that from the top-level players. <laughs> it's just, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's strange. It, it just seems like Runa needs to figure out the focus. I'm glad you mentioned the injury because... I don't know if it was that bad of an injury, but he needs to figure out the physicality aspect, physicality yeah. aspect of it. And it's like, I don't know why. It seems like such a bad time in his career, such a bad time in the season to fire two coaches. And uh, I think he still has like one coach left that is still working with him. That's been working with him for years, but I yeah. just feel like he does need to change something up, but he needs to figure out a way to make it have some longevity to it because Sinner and Alcaraz, Sinner's got Darren Cahill. He's worked with so many Grand Slam champions and done so well. And uh, Cahill has believed in him since the beginning for like four or five years. Then you have Juan Carlos Ferrero who's literally worked with Alcaraz since he was like 12 or 13, since he was literally yeah. a young, young teenager, maybe even before he was a teenager. And yeah. uh, Juan Carlos Ferrero said, this kid is going to win slams. I'm going to make him win slams. I've won slams. Yeah. I'm going to make him win slams. And, uh, you know, they have such strong relationships with their players. Um, to be honest, you saw it in a match like the U.S. Open match that they played a couple of years ago where they were really kind of cheering their players on. I felt like, you know, um, in their own ways, they helped their player through a five-set match like that in every possible way, physically, mentally, just having that kind of positive emotion. It doesn't feel like Rune has any kind of consistent basis in his camp outside of his mom or has any kind of positive emotion going towards him or any kind of way of guiding him physically or mentally. Yeah. And those are ways that really hinder Rune at the moment. So I don't know what's going on with him. He needs to figure it out if he wants to be the next guy up like Sinner. Yeah, you know, and and it's tricky at a young age, you know, um, similar conversation came up with Radhikani. She went through a load of coaches. It was her child, like her longtime kind of childhood coach that is in her box now again, who she's kind of come back around to. But after she won that US Open, it, it felt like everybody kind of had their hand in the mix. Everybody wanted a, a go and she couldn't make a decision. And yeah, maybe she maybe she was ill-advised in that way and could have just stayed with the coach that she had and, and um, won the U.S. Open with and knew her well. Um, you know, that, that can be when you get injuries, when you're, you know, training with new coaches that are implementing new training styles, your body is young, you're just adjusting to a different way of, of learning and competing and doing things um, that are new to you. And that's often when you get injuries. It's hard to do that in the middle of the season. It's hard to to switch up your approach to the game and work with somebody new. And so I think there is a little bit of an argument to be said about players who are at a younger age, just going for stability um, in their, in their coaching setup and, um, you know, prioritizing that, but clearly that's, he's not been able to do that. So let's, let's see if he runs back to Patrick, I would not be surprised. 
Yeah, and I, I don't want to make like too many comments on what's going on behind the scenes because I'm not there behind the scenes in his camp, really specifically in his camp. But something I would say about like the big three in general is that they um, – or some, something I would say about the big three in general and, and players that have kind of come to the top is that they, you know, Federer, Murray, Nadal, and Djokovic all have been – had the same girlfriend for many, many years or now yeah. have married and engaged with a, a, a person for many, many years. They have uh, for many years, maybe five, six years at the time, at least had the same coach. Even if, you know, Federer experimented with Edberg, Djokovic got Becker, and then he got Ivanisevic, all of them stayed for like at least three, four years. They always had mm-hmm. stability in their camp. That helped them because listen, <laughs> how are you going to, how are you going to work in such a fine margin, chaotic sport like tennis? We a day in week in week out year in year out. If there's stuff going on on the personal side and everything's switching all the time, you have no yeah. idea really who you're working with. You have no idea what's the trajectory of your career, what's the direction you're going with. Um, you know, you can never have every single part of your game perfect. What People who know what part of the game needs to work with. Somebody who knows, because if they look at Runa, they're like, oh, wow, your serve is amazing. But somebody who studied it deeper and looked at it deeper is like, oh, well, that's the shot that actually needs work compared to these other shots. So it's like... You want you want that stability in your camp and uh, to to be for everything be able to work right on court as opposed to personal as well. And he just has so many things going on from physical to mental that it just feels like the personal stuff is related and it's a bit worrying to be honest. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, and you know, in an individual sport, it yeah. it bleeds onto the court and. You know, um, totally agree with everything you said. And then if we flip the coin on it, there's also moments where we need change. You've worked with somebody for so long. You have the same voice in the back of your head and you're not making progress. Made that argument with Sakari that maybe she needs a coaching change because she's been working with the same coach for more than five years and is continually seeing bad results at Grand Slams. And uh, that's why I'm kind of interested in why Jessica Pagula has parted ways with her kind of long-term coach. Um, She does have a neck injury, so she's uh, missing some of this Middle East swing, but she announced uh, yesterday that she's parting ways with her coach. And, you know, maybe that is a reaction to some of the kind of rhetoric around Pagula of like, you can't make it deep in the slams. And she's 28 years old and she's like, shit, I need a different perspective, a different voice in my camp. That's going to help me get to the next level. And I think there's such... um, fine margins and nuances in a player's ability to stick or twist with a coach and understanding where they are in the trajectory and the relationship with them and being able to write out tough moments and good moments and understand that it's rare for relationships to last forever in that sense but um that also stability is a good thing and so that's a hard balance to strike but I'm intrigued to see who uh, Pagula is going to be working with now and um, kind of what her approach is going to be. And if this really is in reaction to kind of, yeah, some of the more disappointing Grand Slam performances and um, see if see if that makes a difference for her, because she's certainly you know good enough to, to make it deeper at a slam and um, has a skill oh, yeah. set to do so. So um be interested to see what comes yeah, of that this it's, year. yeah it's strange because she's won what two three masters now and like yeah. is consistent throughout the whole year she's a player who should be going deeper i would also pin pin it to the fact that you know uh 
Katie Bolter lost that United Cup. Very strange performance from her. Uh, one hit nine winners in her, I think, second round match against Burrell at the Australian Open. Lost that one pretty badly. I think six four six two. It's like those were weird performances from Jessica Pagula. I'm sure she was like, you know what? I'm I, I'm I'm getting older, like you said. I want to be doing well. I need to switch something up. And it was probably a mix of bad performances to start the year and also the fact that, yeah, even what she was doing last year, she probably felt like, Hey, I want to be a step above this as well. Mm -hmm. So in the, in the, um, in the grand scheme of things and in the long term, I think that maybe it could be a good thing to kind of step back so they can take like three steps forward and uh, we'll see if that's what she's able to do. But it is, uh, it is a little bit concerning, but it's not as concerning to me as the Holger situation, for example. I agree. Yeah. 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 And that's why I'm saying like, you know, on one side, you can have something that you feel optimistic about change wise. And then on the other side, you have a situation where you have question marks because that's it's been an ongoing issue with him. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, I think, you know, same situation, probably two very different outcomes with these two players. We'll see how it goes, um, but also two two very different stages of their career as well. So, yeah. Um, We'll keep an eye on it and we'll keep you guys updated. But I, I think sure. that wraps us for today. We've had a long chat and we'll cover some more culture pieces yeah. next week. Um, but uh, yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, appreciate everybody joining in for this week's episode. I've been Anthony Hirsch. I'm Eliza Westgate. And uh, don't forget to like the video if you enjoyed it. Uh, don't forget to follow us on all of the podcasting platforms as well. If you're watching on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe to YouTube as well. And um, don't forget to uh, do all of that stuff, share around the podcast. I'll see you guys at the next podcast for, to talk more tennis. See you at the next one.